And that's a trip. That's a trouble with investing in general. Uh, the feedback loop on investing, it's measured in years. You don't know for years whether or not you made a good decision or a bad decision. But we get instantaneous feedback loops when we're looking at with price. So that is a, a signal to, to noise problem with, uh, with investors. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, and today I'm joined by Brian Feraldi of Motley Fool and Twitter fame. We discuss Brian's investing checklist, various methods of valuing companies, when to sell a stock, optionality, and so much more. It's been a little while since we've had a pure investing show, and Brian is the perfect guest to do so. He started investing in 2004, around the same time I did, and he has a wonderful way of breaking down investment concepts into easily digestible, concise bits of information. His Twitter following has absolutely exploded due to his knack for creating graphics that demonstrate financial wellness and investing ideas. If you're looking to better understand investing concepts, this is the episode for you. Enjoy. Brian, thanks so much for uh, joining me today on the show. James, pleasure to be here. Let me start by saying I really admire your ability to concisely and effectively communicate investing topics and information to people. And I'm a little bit envious because it's something that I'm not particularly good at. Knowing something and understanding something is not always the same uh, as being able to explain it. So let me start by saying I really enjoy what you post on Twitter and, and kind of how you think and convey messages. Thank you. The, the secret to getting better at that is to suck at it for a long time. I know, and I'm right in the middle of my sucking, so hopefully I'm getting a little bit better. <laughs> you know, I wanted to jump in with something kind of simple, something I get all the time from clients, friends, family members, and you probably get this a lot too, and that is someone comes to you and wants your opinion about a particular stock or a company, and you may know a lot about it, you may follow it closely, you may even own it, or it may be totally foreign to you. You might not have any idea what the company does or who they are. And they set, end up saying something like, yeah, it's, you know, it's really cheap. And you say, oh, what do you mean? And they say, it's $5 a share. And obviously that really tells us nothing about whether or not it's cheap or expensive. And I've heard you explain this a little bit better um, than I do. So can you talk a little bit about that disconnect of share price and value and how people sometimes get the two confused? Sure. And it is something that, confused the heck out of me when I first started because investing is the only only purchase that we really make in our life where price tells you nothing about value. You can go to, if you're house shopping, for example, everyone knows a million dollar house, all things else is going to be better than a $200,000 uh, house. Obviously, real estate, there's lots of factors to go in there. But with investing, 
so many people, myself included, are trained their whole life to be value-focused consumers. And one of the biggest signals that we get when we're shopping for value is, is the, the price of something. So it just makes complete sense if you don't, if you're just getting exposed to investing from the first time, that a stock that's trading for $5 is going to be cheaper in air quotes than a stock trading for uh, $50. In reality, the, it takes education and knowledge to understand that price is a component of, of value and price might suggest value, but price is just one factor that goes into the how a business is, is valued. And the thing that is takes effort to actually look up is how many shares exist, right? There's there's no if you pull up um, uh, Apple's ticker on, on on the app, you can see what the price is uh, to the penny. But you have to do a lot of work, and you have to know what you're looking for to find out well how many shares exist and what is the market cap uh, of, of Apple. So this is something that completely tripped me up when I first uh, started. I only had a few hundred dollars to invest. And because of that, I was naturally attracted to penny stocks. So many of the stocks that I first purchased traded between 50 cents and $5 per share. My logic was I would, if I want to make a meaningful return, I would rather have 100 shares of a, of a $5 stock uh, than 10 shares of a $50 uh, stock because in theory that five dollar stock just has to go up five dollars for me to double my money, where that fifty dollar stock has to go up fifty dollars uh, to double my money, and it's it's hard to explain to somebody uh, that that concept until they actually dig into the weeds of investing. Yeah, I agree, and very well put. And I think we fell into a lot of the same traps, unfortunately, when we we started investing. I think you started investing around the same time I did, I think 2004 ish. Mm -hmm. So I was right in that kind of same, same time frame, And I did the exact same thing. I was investing in, um, I, I remember buying this gold mining stock that supposedly was mining in, uh, this incredible mine in like Argentina or something. I literally knew nothing about it. It was like a sub penny stock. Um, you know, so it was total trash, total garbage. I lost money on it. I thought I was like outsmarting something. I don't know what I was doing, but but you know, those are lessons and you, you move on and you get smarter and, and you uh, take those lessons with you and you do better. Yeah, I kind of thought like suckers were out there buying shares of like Coca-Cola and, and, and Walmart <laughs> and General Electric. But look at these look at these suckers that are settling for like a five or 10 percent return. I want the stock that's going to double in the next week and deliver a massive return now. Right. I mean, it, it, it sounds it sounds obviously so naive to say that in hindsight, but it's such a natural thought for people to have because none of us were, are trained or very, very few of us are trained in how investing works before we before we start uh, doing so. And if we invested at the same time back in 2004, the, the only really way that you could get information was through books. Like that was like, that was pretty much uh, it. So that's how I learned uh, so much. Uh, investors that are getting started today are, are spoiled in so many ways because not only do they have access to low cost tools that lets them invest for essentially free, there is so much information out there that is consumable that can teach you these principles uh, for free. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great time to be a, an investor. It's a great time to be starting investing and it's a great time to, if you know, no matter where you're at in your journey. So um, I totally agree. I want to summarize your investing strategy to the best of my ability from what I've seen you put out there. You can tell me if I got it wrong or right or partially wrong or right. 
and and I, I think I would say you seek to buy exceptional companies and hold them for a long time. Is that kind of get it, um, at least at a very basic level? Yeah, that's that's roughly correct. Uh, my general strategy is to find the best companies that I can, uh, buy the best companies that I can, and hold those companies until they're no longer great. With that being said, can you kind of dive in a little bit, and you can go as deep as you want or as surface level as you want, into what types of things you're looking for? How do you define basically a great company? Sure. So an exercise that I suggest everybody listening to this do, uh, if you're an investor, and it doesn't matter to me what your kind of an investor you are, but take the time uh, to go through this exercise, no matter what you're looking for. Uh, step one, write down all of the attributes that you're looking for in a company that makes that company attractive uh, to you. Uh, so I did this exercise and I came up with a list of things like uh, I like a balance sheet that has tons of cash and no debt. Uh, I like free cash flow to be high and rising. I like profits. I like high returns on capital. I like a competitive advantage that is widening. I like a business with optionality, with a founder-led management team, with high inside ownership, with recurring revenue, a stock that's beat in the market, et cetera. So I made this big list of all the things that I want in an investment. And then I made another list, which is what are the things that I don't want in an investment? What things turn me off? And that and things like high dilution uh, rates, customer concentration, and over-dependence on some outside market price for success. For example, a gold company is very dependent on the price of, of, of gold. Um, an oil company is very dependent on the price of oil. Banks are very dependent on interest rates. Those are factors that are outside of management's control. I don't want to invest in companies that rely on luck in addition to uh, execution uh, skill. Uh, I don't like companies that grow primarily through acquisition. I don't want um, companies that get the vast majority of revenue overseas because that can lead to currency translation issues, et cetera. So I made both a list of, of both of those things. And then I put those down uh, into a spreadsheet and I forced myself to allocate points to the attributes that I like and the, the attributes that I, that I don't like. And by forcing myself to weigh those factors against each other, I created a really simple system. And now I can take any company that I'm interested in researching it and take it through this consistent process, top to bottom, and see how aligned this particular company is to the attributes that I find uh, most, most appealing. Then uh, from that list, I simply buy the ones that score the highest according to the attributes that I'm looking for, while also simultaneously factoring in things like uh, long-term growth potential and, um, uh, and, and valuation at any given time. And doing so allows me to essentially build myself a hand-picked index fund of companies that I think have the best chance of compounding for a long period of time. It's fantastic. And your checklist is is really impressive. I actually have used it and really like it. You know, I wrote a blog post, actually just published it today about financial planning. And it's about how, in my opinion, it's the process, going through the process of coming up with that plan where the real value is, kind of not the end result of the plan. Because now you're getting someone thinking about various aspects of their life and their finances. And that alone is really powerful, just that awareness. And that's kind of how I feel about your checklist or other checklists that are out there. Yes, the, you know the result is important, but just going through the mental exercise of looking at those parts of a company that otherwise you might kind of ignore and just say, hey, I, I like this company or what, you know, whatever. 
Um, so I, I think it provides a mental framework, which is really important when there's so much out there to consider um, and nothing's ever going to get it right, but at least it puts you um, in the right state of mind to start looking at those things. I, I, I totally agree. We, uh, we say all the time that we, we, we run stocks through this checklist uh, on, my invest, on my YouTube channel all the time. And we say consistently, the output is, uh, the final score isn't the real value of this. What's valuable is the consistent process of going through and making sure you are aware of all the factors that go into uh, any investment decision. I mean, I own stocks that have scored poorly on my checklist going in eyes wide open I know ahead of time, this is going to be an extremely risky uh, company. I still want to own a small little bit of it because per se, the potential is 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 so huge. But yeah, it's the process that's, that's the value. Well, that's a really good point. It might not even change your mind, but it might change how you allocate or something. You might look at a company and really like it and plan on allocating you know, to whatever your standard allocation might be. But then you say, hey, going through this, I realized maybe it's a little more risky than I realized. So I still want to buy it, but um, I'm not going to buy as much of it or I'm going to buy it more slowly over time or whatever the situation is. So I think at a minimum, it's just a good starting point and it can help you make decisions whether it's to buy it or not to buy it or just how much to buy. Totally agree. You mentioned earlier types of investors, you know, and you said, you know, no matter what type of investor you are, you should make these make a list. And, and I, I totally agree with that. One thing that's always bothered me ever since I started investing was how dogmatic people can get about falling into like certain styles or camps of investments, whether it's value investors or growth investors or traders or whatever, quant investors. Do you consider yourself to fall into a camp or are you more of a hybrid? You know, how do you describe yourself? Yeah, I don't consider myself to be any one type of investor. I own um, a, a plethora of companies. I, I own companies that I bought because I thought the valuation was attractive. I also own companies that traded absolute sky high nosebleed valuations. I even own a handful of companies that are in the R&D phase and have no revenue currently. And those are truly like lottery tickets. Um, if you force me to pin down and say, uh, this is the type of investor you are, I would say that I align closest with the GARP camp, camp G-A-R-P, which is growth at a reasonable price. So I'm looking in general for high quality, high growth businesses uh, that are trading at a reasonable valuation and reasonable obviously means different things to different uh, people. But when I look at valuation, uh, I think the thing that often gets lost isn't necessarily the absolute valuation that a company is trading at at any given time. Those metrics are very easy to calculate, such as, oh, this stock is trading at 30 times sales or a thousand times earnings or whatever it is. Uh, when I think about valuation, I think about it on a sliding scale, and I am far more focused on the market cap of a company, not the not the absolute valuation that a company is trading at. Uh, for example, if I find a company that is trading for, let's say, $3 billion, that's its current market valuation, and I could see this company one day trading for $30 billion. Like I think the business is strong enough, the growth rates are high enough, that I could see this being a $30 billion company uh, one day. I'll buy it regardless of what the current valuation is. If it's a hundred times sales, whatever it is, 
I'll say this company, uh, if it's good enough, uh, I'll just I'll just buy outright. I'm not going to be price valuation sensitive with companies that I think could could literally uh, 10x. If you go to the other other end of the uh, extreme and take a large, predictable, slower growth uh, company like many of the many of the Fang stocks uh, today, Facebook, Apple. Uh, geez, I guess Fang doesn't apply anymore now that uh, the F is now <laughs> M. Uh, main stocks or whatever you want to call it. Um, their days of hyper growth are, are behind them. Uh, I think all of them are going to continue to to grow, but their growth rates moving forward are going to be slower than they have been in the past and, and a little bit more predictable. If I was to uh, take a new position in, say, uh, Google uh, uh, Google today, uh, I would be far more focused on the valuation of that company just because it's already a $2 trillion uh, business. And, and I would have to ask myself, do I think this is going to be a $4 trillion company? Well, maybe. Like, I, I think that's definitely in the realm of possibilities. But I would be far more valuation focused on that side of the scale. So, in general, the larger the return potential, the less valuation focused I am, and the and the more predictable or lower the return potential, the more I focus on valuation. Yeah, I, I invest very similarly um, to, to that as well. In particular, when it comes to to you know, kind of traditional valuations, I, I just don't really understand how you could apply like some of the more common traditional value investor metrics to a company that's relatively young, growing revenues rapidly. They just, it's hard to apply them. They don't, it doesn't make sense to do so. So when I describe myself, I kind of, um, A, I always say I'm willing to learn from anybody. I don't care how they identify or what, if I think they have something valuable to teach me, I'm definitely willing to listen and try to implement whatever that might be. And I think, you know, after I went through my silly stage of uh, trying to become a day trader by trading penny stocks as a 18, 19, 20 year old, I definitely went hard into the value camp, read a lot of the, the uh, classic value investor books, you know, stuff from Benjamin Graham, uh, followed Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and those guys very closely. And they're, they're absolutely brilliant and have a ton to teach. But I think the real takeaways for me was more on the behavior side. I think they've really nailed down investor behavior. They've really nailed down the advantage of a long time horizon. And, and so those things I kind of t- have taken from them. Um, and I tend to be more of a growth investor in, in actually choosing the investments. So, you know, I, I also am kind of a blend, I would say. I, I don't really identify with any particular camp. But um, I do think it's interesting to, to follow people who have done well in any with any uh, formula, if you will. So... You mentioned something I want to touch on, and I've heard you speak about this before, and it's the idea of a company being both overpriced and undervalued at the same time. How can that be? It's a really hard thing to wrap your head around uh, when when you think about it. How can a company be built simultaneously extremely expensive and insanely undervalued at the same uh, at the, at the same time. Well, let's take those uh, one, one one at one at a time. It's insane, insanely overvalued. Uh, typically, is based off of some current price to blank metric. Uh, the price to sales ratio is fifty. The price to earnings ratio is a thousand. Uh, whatever, whatever, whatever number that you want to throw out there, um, the numbers can look insane and they couldn't look like they're pricing in so much growth that the company can't possibly live up to the expectations that are suggested according to the the stock price and yet if you look back at basically the greatest investments 
of the last 20, 30, 50 uh, years, uh, many companies were called insanely expensive and were simultaneously incredible uh, buys at the, at the same time. I mean, one obviously extreme example, uh, but it's an example uh, nonetheless would be just uh, Amazon. Uh, Amazon uh, total return uh, since this company came public is 189,000 uh, percent. Literally, you buy a, a tiny, tiny, put a thousand dollars into Amazon, you have more money, all the money that you'll ever need of your entire uh, life. But if you look at Amazon in 2000, any metric you look at suggested this company is insane. Like the valuation here is insane uh, what, what Amazon is currently being uh, priced at. And yet, even if you bought Amazon at the absolute worst time, the worst, highest, most insane valuation, uh, you have still made more than 20 times your money in Amazon. Now, you had to go through a nuclear winter and go through a 90% drawdown, and you had to hold for 20 years, and you had to basically think to yourself, I paid the wrong price for at least nine years to uh, to get back to um, uh, to even. But even in at that insane price, Amazon is literally up 20-fold, which is a return that smashes the, the, the market. That just beats the heck out of, out of the market's return. So that, that, to me, is a great example of a company that can be insanely expensive while simultaneously being uh, cheap at the same time. Uh, one of my mentors is a guy named uh, Tom, Tom Angle, and he has this beautiful uh, phrase about this. He calls them uh, short-term expensive, long-term cheap. Yeah, it, and it's so true, and you see it over and over again, and it is really hard. I struggled with that for so long. I passed on so many great companies you know, back, especially in the mid-2000s when I was, uh, oh, I guess later 2000s, um, early 2010s, when I was kind of shifting my learning, feeling my way around, I passed on so many great companies because every time I looked at them, every time I tried to apply these metrics to them, it was like, that is insane. I cannot, I cannot buy this. And then a year would go by and I'd feel foolish and I'd look at it again and I'd say, ah, it's even more expensive. I can't do it. And then another year would go by and I would do the same thing until finally I had to start looking at, at, at things a little bit differently. And it goes back to, to what you said earlier about, about being uh, overpriced and undervalued at the same time. And you have to just accept that and put that in your mind that it's possible because it sounds like two conflicting ideas. So appreciate you for kind of sharing that. I think it's really important for people to understand if you're going to invest in companies um, that are still growing, especially. And Amazon's a great segue to the next kind of piece I want to talk about. And that's something I think is wildly underrated when you talk to people about investing. And it's just the idea of optionality. We can't predict the future, right? And everyone wants to try. And I think we're really good at coming up with all of the bad things that can happen. We're really creative when it comes to thinking about how the world can can uh, end and how a particular company could just be destroyed. But we're really bad at being creative about how the future of a company could change for the better or how they might be able to morph their business over time into something that's more valuable. Can you talk a little bit about optionality and how you factor that into your stock purchases? When I look back at some of my best investing decisions that I've ever made and the reasons why the companies that I bought uh, when I did went out to outperform as much as they did, it was often attributable to optionality. And to me, optionality is a company's ability to launch new products or new services that open up brand new revenue streams 
in, in the future. And that's a really hard thing to screen for or look for uh, in a company. But if you look, if I look at my own uh, portfolio, some of my biggest winners are companies that had optionality in spades. I mean, when I became an investor in, in Amazon, uh, for, for example, the business was Amazon's e-commerce sales, first, first party e-commerce sales. And if you look at one of the reasons why Amazon stock has gone up so much, it's because of Amazon Web Services, right? Yep. This whole AWS, business, yeah. whole business that existed inside of, of Amazon and has generated enormous, enormous profits uh, for for the company. Uh, when I bought the company, I wasn't Amazon Web Services wasn't on my radar at all, and yet right. that has been a lion's share driver of profitability for the company. Uh, simultaneously, uh, they've become a giant search engine that has this unbelievably lucrative advertising business uh, built, built, built into them. So Amazon is a great example of me, uh, to me of a company that has tremendous optionality. Another one that comes to mind is, uh, is Tesla. Uh, I first became an investor in Tesla in 2011, 2012-ish. And at the time, they had just launched the Model S and if you look where, where they are today, uh, not only do they have several more car uh, products that are on the market and selling well, several other car products that are in the queue that could be coming out soon that open up new markets, but they also have Tesla Energy. And Tesla Energy has not been a major contributor to any of the company's financial results uh, thus far, but it sure does hold a whole lot of promise uh, to say nothing of their uh, their chip that they developed or even the bot, the, the Tesla bot that they, yeah. that they, that they announced uh, recently. So when I look at Tesla, the company just has a tremendous amount of optionality built into it. And it's the ability to take their engineering talents, create new products and open up new revenue streams that you just can't uh, pr- predict. So optionality is, to me, something that I look for when I'm making an investment in a company. Two great examples. And I've been a Tesla fanboy for forever. And anyone who listens to this <laughs> probably already knows that. I have fought and fought with people over Tesla for a long, long time. I think they're probably my favorite example of optionality um, because I can remember even going back four or five years, people using metrics, data, numbers to compare them to Ford and GM. And I kept trying to tell people that is a silly comparison to try to make. They're not doing the same thing. And people kept trying to say Tesla was a car company and they were, but they were also a tech company, a software company, a battery company, an energy company, all of those things. So it's, you know, that's a, that's a great example about optionality and what Amazon has done is just out of this world, uh, incredible. And AWS still flies under the radar, by the way, for, for a lot of people, um, not, not so much investors, but just people who, when they think about Amazon, they still think e-commerce first, I think most people. So really interesting examples of optionality and two really good ones, I think. I want to shift gears just a touch. Um, you've got your checklist. I've heard you talk about some of your um, discipline as far as when to sell. Obviously, your checklist helps you decide when to buy or if to buy. So I would imagine you have pretty strong habits just in general. Can you talk about any non-investment related habits that you have that you think really strengthen or help your, your investing? Sure. Uh, just a, a couple that, that, that would come to mind. Uh, first is just curiosity. I, uh, I'm, I'm not the type of person that likes to sit down and watch movies or I don't really like to watch. I am 
completely terrible at keeping up with the news, which by the way, I think does wonders for my personal mental health. Uh, so I am not, not, I am not up to date on fashion or um, television or many of the things that a lot of people are really up to date on. Uh, I spend a tremendous amount of my free, free time uh, researching and, and, and learning. And one, one resource that I absolutely love and use every day is, is YouTube. Like I, I watch YouTube uh, for at least an hour every single day. And to me, YouTube, just, just like any uh, social media platform that's out there, if used properly, can be a tremendous resource for learning and, and discovery and, uh, and, and, and finding things out. Uh, or you can also use that exact same resource uh, to go down uh, bad rabbit holes and it kind of watch like the dumbest videos that you can uh, imagine. But it blows my mind the amount of high quality content that is out there for free that can be consumed that relates to any subject that you can uh, imagine. I mean, one one um, channel that I binge and re-binge on a regular basis is called Crash Course, uh, which is uh, created by um, uh, John and Hank Green. And uh, for the last like two weeks, for example, I've been binging their um, their course that they have on chemistry. And it's like a series that dives into the, the basics of, of chemistry and, and, and goes deep on them. And they have tons of, uh, of other courses uh, in there. So I would say that I am voraciously learning about things that both that have nothing to do with investing, but can, just by just by being curious about them, you can kind of pick up things that may be applied to investing uh, later in life. And then the other thing that, uh, that I uh, do is uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, of exercising, get outside, being, being in, in the sunshine, uh, those kind of uh, having a regimented uh, routine for, for keeping yourself uh, fit and, and healthy. I think that helps me to, to think better. In fact, just, I, I can't tell you how many good investing ideas I've had while just going on a walk. Um, and maybe throwing on a podcast and pausing the podcast whenever my mind starts firing about something and I take notes uh, to myself. So I love exercising and cleaning because they are they they give me mental space to just think uh, essentially and run through and run through ideas. So I would say that um, uh, those two uh, help me. Brilliant! I will have to check out that uh, YouTube channel. That sounds very interesting, and I would have to agree with you on on both those. I've, the reason I ask that is I've been really trying to kind of take inventory of my habits, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and uh, really make sure that I'm kind of crafting. Uh, the, the life where my small habits um, are in the right direction and, and uh, you know, fix some of those. Uh, you know, I've, I've lost some weight recently over the last six months, got a little sloppy there for a minute, but, you know, trying to course correct. And so I'm always interested in little things that can have big, you know, big implications on, on how you live. So um, very good stuff. I want to shift back to stocks and talk about selling stocks because when I look back at my own history and my own track record, I think it's safe to say that selling stocks too early has been the number one mistake I've made that's cost me the most money. And I personally, uh, when I think about it, realize that I spend a lot of energy and a lot of time trying to determine what stocks to buy. And I basically had no discipline, no um, met- methodology to selling. And you hear a lot about people panic selling when a stock goes down. I did that some plenty, to be honest. Um, but worse, I would panic sell when things were going up. I, I, it, it, it's almost like it's too good to be true. I'm up 50%. I got to sell. And, and that's so silly when you spent so much time coming up with a thesis. The thesis is fully intact. 
to sell it just because you like freaked out because you made some money. So can you talk about your sell checklist? I know you have, I think, 10 or 11 um, reasons that you sell and you don't have to cover all of them. Uh, you can pick and choose, but uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So just like the uh, process I suggested people go before where they came up with a list of attributes they like and a list of attributes they don't like. I really think, again, it is worth taking the time when you're going slow, when you're not looking at stock prices to write down what are the things that would cause me to reevaluate my thesis or that would cause me uh, to sell. And let me just say up front, um, I think that selling is so much harder than, than, than buying. I agree. It really, really, it really, really is. And it's easy, especially if you have a long-term bias like, like I do, it's easy to talk yourselves into holding something that maybe doesn't deserve to be, to be held. But like you, my, some of my most expensive investing decisions that I've ever made have been selling great stocks early. And in general, if I have 10 stocks and I'm thinking about selling and I'm right about nine of them, but I'm really, really, really wrong about one of them, uh, that means that my entire selling decisions um, have, have cost me more money than it saved me. Uh, so for that reason, I am very, very reluctant to, 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 sell, to, to sell stocks uh, as just a pure baseline. Like you, I put so much energy in up front and I would just kind of rather have have the chips kind of fall where they may if my thesis is 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 right. But with all that in mind, I do sell uh, on 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 occasion, and there's a few reasons for. It. Uh, number one reason I will sell is because I was wrong. Like I bought a stock for ABC reasons, and ABC reasons don't happen, or I I misjudged something about about the the company. One that comes to mind is um, two years ago I became very excited about Grubhub. The company that was uh, the, the meal delivery company. I thought yeah. the company had a much stronger competitive advantage in its in its in its markets uh, than it did. It was the top dog in, in, in almost every market. And then along comes DoorDash, and DoorDash was just grabbing market share left and right. And the company that was formerly profitable said, "Well, we have to spend like crazy on marketing uh, and sales to get to get the word out." And their profits went from being high to being negative. And I said. Clearly, I misjudged this company's moat. So I was wrong about this business. So that's an example of when I, I, I sold it. So that's the number one reason I sell. Something in my initial analysis was wrong. Number two, I will sell if all of a sudden something comes out that says um, we're, we're doing, a, we have to have our financials re-audited. Or if there's some, some, some way that comes out that basically says the numbers that we've put out can't be, can't be trusted. Right. To me, it's just like, oh, you're dead to me forever. Like if I can't trust your financials, uh, there's thousands of other companies that I can. Why would I ever bother with you, uh, the, the company? Uh, number three would be a thesis changing acquisition, a thesis changing acquisition. So relative size between the acquirer and the acquiree uh, matters. Uh, if Apple, which is worth $2 trillion, spends $20 billion to buy some business, it's irrelevant. Like it is basically irrelevant. You're talking about a 1% acquisition related to that company's right. market. So it, even if that acquisition goes to zero, 
it's, it's irrelevant to the company's value. Now, if a $15 billion company acquires another $15 billion company, boy, is that relevant. And boy, could Absolutely. that be thesis changing for, for the company. So if, if one of my investments took a massive stake in another business and I didn't like the business they, they bought, I would say that's thesis changing. Uh, I need to I need to move on. Uh, Has that happened recently? Any recent examples or... Uh, none, none that come to mind, but I will say that that's one reason why I haven't been all that high on Teladoc, which is a company that many other people have been high on. Uh, to me, Teladoc has been a big part of their strategy with the growth by acquisition. And a few years ago, they bought Lavongo. I mean, that was last right. year they bought Lavongo. Yeah. And that was a, that was a merger of equals in terms of market cap, not necessarily one buying uh, another. So that to me was a, that to me would be a thesis changing uh, acquisition, the size of the size of that. Right. Um, uh, a few more. I'll take from pretty fast. Uh, thesis complete with no compelling second act. Essentially, you buy the company because it's going after a market opportunity. It's successful. It captures that market opportunity. And then it doesn't have another market opportunity to go after, aka there's no optionality. Uh, in that case, you've done very well as an investor, but the odds of high returns going forward have now been diminished. I don't mind declaring victory, taking profits and, and reinvesting them uh, elsewhere. And then I check for things like um, a management uh, mass exodus, or if the valuation is extreme compared to the opportunity. And I say that as someone that is also very willing to pay a high valuation, or uh, if the company itself gets acquired, or I just become not interested in it. Or my favorite reason to sell is I want the money because I'm going to be spending it in my personal uh, life. Uh, for example, if I'm buying a new car or if I'm going on vacation or I'm remodeling my house, that to me is like the best reason to sell because <laughs> isn't that the reason we invest in the first place? Ah, real life. We forget about that sometimes. Yeah. So no, good stuff. Those, those, those are the primary reasons that, uh, that I will sell. I want to shift a little bit. We're jumping around, so I appreciate your uh, your flexibility here. I'm kind of all over the place, but I want to talk a little bit about FIRE, the Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's kind of been a movement that's, I guess, probably been about a decade. It's really been been pretty strong. And you know, there are a, a wide range of, of ways people go about this and to what, it, to what extent. I mean, I recently had Shane Monks O'Byrne on, and uh, he's living out of a camper van in the Arctic Circle right now <laughs> running his startup. So- that's probably an extreme example of fire, but um, it works for him and he's, you know, loving life. So what does fire mean to you? Kind of where do you fall in that range and, and how does that fit in with your goals and your lifestyle? I'm one of those people that the very first time I learned about money and compounding and the idea that you are in business for yourself and you can become rich. Like I just immediately took to it. Like immediately the ideas grabbed me and uh, I heard about FIRE, financial independence, retire early, uh, probably sometime in the 2000, 2010 range, like you're saying, about about to 10 years ago. And again, I was just immediately enthralled with, uh, with the concept. I knew of the concept before having the name uh, FIRE, but um, I think anybody that has a job, especially if you ever have a bad day on the job, you kind of dream of <laughs> saying to your, it's saying, um, I don't ever want to work for anybody else. I want to be financially uh, ind independent and retire, uh, retire early. I will tell you that my, my, my thought on FIRE has changed um, 
pretty drastically over the last few years. And I know many people that have achieved FIRE that have also gone through the same uh, mindset shift where basically the RE, the retire early, is just kind of deleted and you focus pretty much exclusively on the FI, the financial independence uh, part. I mean, to me, if you are, if you have enough, um, uh, if you're willing to go through the effort of achieving financial independence, uh, that means that you get joy out of creating in your, in your real life. And the idea of retiring early and just golfing all day or doing whatever people want want, want to do with their time uh, that turns a lot of people that turns a lot of people off. So. I am a passionate believer in the um, in the FI part, achieving financial independence, and I think if if that appeals to you, you should you should go after that, no matter if you like your job or or not. Um, e- even if you like your job, you like your, your career, you like your boss, like everything that's going on, I still think it makes sense to go for the FI part because work becomes so much more pleasurable when it's when it's a choice. When you can, when you can dictate all of the terms uh, of of your working condition, work just becomes so much more pleasurable. When you can say, when you can pick the projects that you want to work on, when you can speak freely uh, to your your manager and at your company, and, and basically say, there's no there's no repercussions to this because worst case scenario they fire me and I can support myself uh, independently whether or not I'm employed by this company or, or not. So yeah, I think I, I absolutely love uh, the fire movement, and I've been lucky enough to meet and interact with many people that have achieved fire in their life. And I've yet to meet somebody that's unhappy with the decision to, to, to go after fire. <laughs> that's a good point. And it reminds me, even people who weren't necessarily going for that, but just talking about retiring early, I have had so many clients or, or just like friends or my friend's parents, they were like looking towards this moment where they would be eligible to retire. Right. And then they get there and then they work another five years but it's just this idea of like, I don't have to be here. That is like so mentally freeing to, to a lot of people. And, you know, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're working for somebody else or no matter what, I think just having that, that freedom available to you is, is half of the battle. I mean, I mean more than that, it's 95% of the battle, I think. So it is interesting. And I think a lot of people too are realizing the retire early thing isn't something that is as appealing as when they thought about it originally. Um, I think a lot of people will, will do something different or, you know, find some other passion project or something. But uh, like you said, not just sit around and play golf or go fishing every day. Yeah, the, the, the best way I think I've heard uh, describe that is from uh, Jonathan Mendonza of the Choose FI. He calls it a fully funded lifestyle change. And I, I like that way of saying it. Basically, what do, it, it's the idea of saying, what do you actually want to do with, with your time? And not just your time, like the best hours of your life. Uh, most people spend 95 or 98% of those working. Uh, so it's, it's really important to discover uh, what you actually want to do with your, with your, with your time on earth. And, and fire uh, allows you to basically spend that time, which is a precious resource as you see fit. Yeah, totally agree. I want to go to a quote here. Um, and it's been said a lot of different ways, very similarly. I think you, you've, you've said it. I've heard other people say it. Shelby Colum Davis said, you make most of your money in a bear market. You just don't realize it at the time. That is something I try to burn into my brain because I've been fortunate. You know, I missed the dot-com piece. And then in 08, I wasn't all that along in my journey. So really, as far as really big, impactful things, COVID was kind of the first big, drastic, very frightening, I guess, pullback 
especially managing other people's money that I had to go through. So that is something I've literally just tried to keep in mind all the time. I've got it on my wall. It's something I never want to forget because it is so easy to freak out um, when something like that happens. Can you just pontificate a little bit on that and your experiences? Sure. The, the returns that you will get as an investor are not necessarily the returns that the market de- will deliver. The returns that you will get as an investor are the times from between when you buy an asset and when you sell an asset. And if that asset performs very well during the times you are, you are holding it, and yet you freak out and sell that asset at the worst possible time, your returns are going to be terrible. If, if, if you started investing in 2000 and let's just say 12, and you did a really good job investing your money and you rode the bull wave up, but you freaked out and sold, panic sold in March of, of 2020 after a 30% decline, uh, your long-term returns are, are not going to be good no matter how good they looked on paper beforehand. Uh, they're, they're going to be terrible. Uh, Nassim Taleb calls this your uncle point. Basically the point yeah. where you say that I can't take it anymore. I'm crying uncle. Uh, this is when I, I, I'm, I'm bailing out. So yeah, like you, I love that that quote by, 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 Del, uh, by Shelby Davis because it shows essentially – while, while 90% of the time, or even 95% of the time, markets behave rationally and it moves slowly and it moves uh, up and down and you can dollar cost average and do the right thing. Well, all of that doesn't matter if you behave badly uh, when prices are, are, are declining. Uh, moreover, when prices are declining, that's when there are generational buying opportunities. You, you could have bought any stock any good stock um, in 2009, and, and you would have made uh, phenomenal um, money. You could have bought any growth stock in March of, of 2020, and basically anyone, and you would have gotten a phenomenal uh, return. Now, the tricky thing is you don't know it at the time, right? Buying, right, buying right. a stock when it's uh, trading at a 52-week low, when the world is imploding, a uh, boy can that be tricky, uh, tricky to do, and that's a tr- that's a trouble with investing in general. Uh, the feedback loop on investing, um, it's 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 measured it, it's it's measured in years. You don't know for years whether or not you made a good decision or a bad decision. But we get instantaneous feedback loops when we're looking at with price. So that is a signal to, to noise problem with uh, with investors. You make a decision now and you get an instant feedback on basically what happened to the price of the asset. Uh, but you don't know if that was a good decision for a long period of time. So, yeah, that is why almost all a lot of the content that, that I put out there in the world it's mostly about mindset and behavior and basically training yourself and reminding yourself constantly when times are good that bad times are coming and how you behave in those bad times is going to have an outsized impact on how you actually do as an investor. No, very well said. And your Twitter, by the way, is phenomenal. The graphics, the kind of two-second glance to be able to at least get up, get across some aspect of investing behavior or some some little nugget of information that's really tough to do i think i'm really bad like i said at, at things like that i've tried to emulate that a little bit and and make some pieces for my clients so um i you know i've, I've kind of taken your idea and tried to to do it although not nearly as well as you do so you know for the listeners like please go go follow brian on twitter it's a he's an excellent follow and not just on on the uh, graphics although they're great there's also some good stock analysis and numerous other things on there. So really, really enjoy your, your Twitter. Thank you, James. I put, I put a lot of time into it, so I appreciate that very much. 
and I suck at social media. It's probably, <laughs> I mean, I'm really, really bad at it. Um, so <laughs> that's another area where I'm looking to improve. So it's like you said earlier, you got to keep sucking. So I sucked when I started, I sucked too. In fact, I didn't even, I didn't even get what Twitter was. It took me many years to understand what Twitter was. And that's, that's something in general. I think most people get wrong. Most people think Twitter is a social media platform. Like it's a, it's a place to go and, and post go my favorite sports team, or here's what I'm doing on vacation, or here's what I'm having for, for dinner. That's not what Twitter is. If you want to use that, that's Facebook. Right. That, that, that's your friends right. that you're going to. Twitter is a blogging platform. Twitter is a is a place that you go to meet strangers uh, and strangers don't care about what you're doing or where you're on vacation. Uh, strangers care about what you can do for them. Mainly, can you make them smarter? Can you make them laugh or can you make them wealthier? So as a general uh, general advice to people that are interested in building a social media account, uh, focus on whatever you send something out, focus on if I was a stranger and didn't know this person that was tweeting this, would I care about this tweet? If the answer is no, don't send it. I think that's good advice. And you were talking right at me. So uh, I, I will definitely heed that advice as well and try to try to make my own Twitter. And this is how old soul I am. I wasn't even on Twitter until, I don't even think it's been a year. So I, I've been behind the times on Twitter, but I always heard bad things, you know, like how <laughs> hateful and I've been on there and I'm like, this is amazing. Like all of these really intelligent, um, thoughtful people willing to share information and have conversations on topics that I find interesting or can learn from. I mean, it's unbelievable. And the whole time I never got on it because I was like, everyone says Twitter's full of mean people and trolls. So it's, it is, it's like anything else. It's like you said about YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's what you make of it. You can, you can spend your time on BS and arguing and not learning anything or you can be part of communities where people are willing to help each other and, and, and improve. Totally. It's a, I, I had that exact, it sounds like we're going through the exact same life, just in slightly different time uh, periods, because I, I thought the exact same things about Twitter uh, for many, many years. And I didn't really get Twitter until I would say late 2019. So I've only been using it like properly uh, for two years. And like you, I, I found it to be a once you understand what it is, it's a tremendous resource. But like anything, you have to use it the right way. Well, good. Maybe I'm like two years away from an explosion of my Twitter followers. So <laughs> you, you, you laugh, hope. you laugh. That, that is how it works. It, 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 uh, followers compound the exact same way that wealth uh, compounds. So you can't measure yourself against in absolute terms. You have to think in terms of compounding and things can happen quick once you get once you understand what to do. You create another good segue and we're, uh, we'll get into kind of the closing questions here in a second. But, you know, I want to talk about the concept of linear versus exponential because a lot of my investment style, I guess, is based on innovation and disrupting industries um, that are, you know, just ripe to, to change and, and to progress um, as humanity and technology and innovation happens. I think one of the big disconnects, and it goes back to what we were talking about with some of the companies earlier, is we inherently think we've been taught in school to think linearly. And that's really just not how the world works. And I mean, like even your Twitter follower count is a good example it doesn't grow and it, it didn't grow in a straight line. It probably had some sort of S curve. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And do you think that's correct? And as far as most people don't think exponentially when they're looking at uh, whether it's financial, you know, companies to invest in or just other, other things. 
Yeah, humans, humans, and I count myself as human, we generally struggle with the concept of, of S-curves because it always sounds so pie in the sky when you see the expectations that are, that are, that are put out there. But if you look at disruptive technologies, uh, they are always always disrupted with 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 s-curves where it takes years and it takes forever and nothing looks like it looks like nothing is happening and then finally the product or the service or the disruptive technology reaches a point where it reaches product market fit and then the the growth just accelerates like crazy and then it and then it so much happens in an incredibly short period of, of time and we're lucky to be living in an age when there are so many technologies that are taking off right now that are at the very, very start of, of their, their S-curve. And I would argue that's one reason why if you look at the valuations of many of the electric car companies that are out there today, so many of them look insane, like insanely insane. And by the way, I, I, I think that many of them are in the insane, uh, insanely priced category. But if you think through what's going to happen to electric vehicles over the next 10 years, I, I firmly believe that they are just now hitting the, the S curve and then, and, and say 10 years from now, it's going to be weird for somebody to buy a car that's not an, an electric car. And if you think about what, what has to happen in society for that to happen, that's a, that's a monumental uh, shift. So like you said before, when you look and say people were comparing Tesla uh, to GM and saying, well, look how many cars Tesla produces today versus GM. And it's, well, those cars that, G, in my opinion, those, those uh, internal combustion engine cars that are produced by the other companies, yeah, th- that's rapidly going towards zero. And, right. and 100% of that market share is going to be shifting towards uh, electric. So that's why the market is pricing things in uh, the way that it is. But yeah, if if you it's it's so hard to understand an S curve and believe the predictions of people that are forecasting an S curves at the time because they they look like they're so outlandishly uh, huge. So um, and I myself have a hard time uh, of b- believing the uh, the adoption curves that are, that are thrown out there. But as do I, yeah. I think that if you look at people like Kathy Wood uh, or or Tony or Tony Siba or even uh, Elon Elon Musk, if you look at the projections that they're that they're putting out there, they just seem crazy. They seem crazy, but I would argue that they actually understand S curves uh, better than most than anybody else, which is why their, their predictions look so asinine. Is there anything else kind of innovation or disruption wise that gets you excited? I mean, electric vehicles is a big one, obviously. Is there anything else that you could kind of like get excited about for the future? Oh my God. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, so much happening uh, in, in the world right now, and I actually have a a, a tweet that I, that I put out that kind of tracks all of the innovations that I'm um, tracking at any given time. One that, that comes to mind is um, uh, plant based meat. Uh, plant based meat seems like a nice to have, weird, fringy thing that exists uh, out there. But if you look at the long term potential of plant based uh, plant based meats and, and synthetically uh, made meat, uh, the impact that that could have on society is profound, like beyond profound, profound. Um, in fact, Tony Siba, that I was just uh, mentioning. He put out a report, and again, this is going to sound insane uh, when he says it, uh, but he basically believes that plant-based meat and synthetic, synthetically produced food um, once deployed at scale, and that's only 15, 10 to 15 years uh, away, that is going to free up so much land in the United States from producing uh, food the way we currently do that that will free up enough land that equals the Louisiana Purchase. Mm. 
That, Interesting. That's a profound, profound statement. Yeah. And if that is even an, an order of magnitude within the realm of what's going, what going to happen, um, the number of trickle-down implications of that on society broadly are, are extreme. Uh, so while there, the investor in me is kind of on the fence about the idea, uh, specifically because I'm, I'm a big believer that plant-based meat is going to become the dominant uh, food source in, say, 10 or 15 years. Um, what I'm not as confident in is my ability to predict the winner of who's going right. to win that. And, and more importantly, the way that that, that is going to take over is by endlessly lowering prices, lowering prices, lowering prices, which means that the the value that's created will go to the consumer. It won't go to to uh, investors. Mm-hmm. But, man, that, that is a industry that I am very interested in watching. Yeah. One thing I love is to take, you know, like talk about secondary or tertiary effects. And so like the land thing was a really good example. And I was listening to an econ talk a while back where they were talking about electric cars and even, even more was about autonomous cars and what impact that would have. And it was, you know, something you don't really think about, but think about all the parking that will no longer be needed. Um, Think about all the parking garages that can now be demolished and new buildings put up or just it really these these changes really have seismic shifts even beyond just that specific um, event so like thinking about secondary tertiary things that will happen as a result of these big changes like i just i'm fascinated by that stuff and i love to think about it and i'm gonna get most of it wrong but i just i love thinking about what the future might be and it gets me excited and, and i'm an optimist and i'm like you i don't watch the news and all that stuff because it just puts me in a bad space but those things get me excited so for sure cool. or how, 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 what, what about if drunk driving becomes a thing of the past and not, yeah, not exactly. something to worry about anymore i mean just in america alone i think there's ten thousand people that die in car accidents each year what what if we could reduce that by 95 percent uh, what if we can reduce that by 99 percent globally like the 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 implications that are Profound. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I know we're getting a little close on time um, and I want to shift to kind of my closing questions. So the first one, Brian, is what does wealth mean to you? Wealth to me, the the reason that I'm pursuing wealth in the first place is to get back to that FI uh, part. I am after financial independence, um, full, full stop. And again, financial independence to me doesn't mean stop working. Uh, To me, it means work on what I want with who I want for as long as I want, when I want, and I can stop at any time with no repercussions to my family's lifestyle. Like that is, that is what is wealth, wealth is, is to me. Um, and, And that, by the way, is one reason why I've done some things that don't make a ton of sense financially. For example, we've paid off all of our our household debt, including our including our mortgage. And if you look and you would say, well, why the heck would you do that? Interest rates are so low. It makes so much more sense to invest in um, the stock market and earn a higher return. And it's true. My net worth would be higher had I not done that. But I'm not trying to maximize my net worth. I'm trying to maximize my financial freedom. And I believe that paying off your debt is a, is a better use of capital because it gets me to financial freedom as opposed to just maximizing that net worth. So that's what wealth is to me. It's, it's, it's complete control over my calendar. Yeah. I get that question a lot from clients as well. Like, Hey, should I pay off my mortgage? And most of them, you know, they hear and they, and they know yes, at X interest rate and knowing the market broadly, you know, over history returns this, they would do better to keep that money in the market as far as a net worth standpoint. But I always ask them, you know, what's important to you? Will, will you be able to sleep at night? 
uh, better if you pay off that mortgage. You know, those things matter. It's not, uh, not everything's a math problem. And uh, we try to make it that way all the time. But sometimes, you know, we're humans, we have emotions and feelings and wants and desires and, and needs. So um, I think that's important to keep in mind. And I always try to stress that like, this is about you and what makes you feel best. That's why we're doing all this. It's not, it's not a race to see who can die the richest. Um, so and the, good uh, anyways, got is, on the good news there is there's, there are two great options, right? Do I pay off my mortgage or do I invest? Right. right, it, right. It, it, those are two really good options. And what we're essentially debating is which is the better return, uh, better return option. And one, the return is better uh, numerically and one, the return is better emotionally. So there's no right or wrong answer. And final question, Brian, is if you could go back and talk to maybe your teenage self and give yourself some advice, um, could be about money, could be about career, life, whatever. What would you tell yourself? Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, so that's a, that's an interesting question. And I'm very happy with all of the choices that I made, uh, because if I didn't make those choices, I wouldn't be where I am, uh, where, where I am today. So I could, of course, go back in time and say, don't make this mistake uh, with money, buy this thing, uh, sell, sell this thing. But the journey of me discovering those things on my own has been immensely rewarding uh, to, to me. So I would just go back and say, uh, if anything, um, it's going to be okay and, and life's going to work out. You don't necessarily need to be as uh, focused on, on money as perhaps I, I was early. I mean, one big mistake that I made uh, in, uh, early on was I was, I, I watched every single cent that, that we, um, that we spent. And I made sure that we were maximizing the amount of money that we were putting into our investments, which again, financially was the right thing to do. Uh, but emotionally it would probably be better if I wasn't so hyper-focused on that and just said, this is the amount of money I want to invest. Uh, once we hit that kind of loosen up the purse strings and allow ourselves to do, uh, take, take little, little things in life that brings a, a joy. So I would just say more, um, focus on living a good life and just know that if you do good things in the long term and invest for the long term, you'll do fine financially. Yeah, absolutely. And those are tough things to balance, especially when you're younger, you're trying to do the right thing financially. You, you know, you don't know what the outcome is um, at the time. So you're probably worried about it and trying to do so, you know, it's, it's all learning experience. And like you said, it's, it's a journey and everyone's is different. And hopefully we uh, reach our goals. So it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you, Brian, I really appreciate your time. And uh, before we go, can you just tell the people where they can find you? The best place to connect with me is on Twitter. I am at Brian Feraldi. And if you're interested in learning more about my uh, checklist, uh, we take companies through that checklist every single week on my YouTube channel. Also, Brian Feraldi. Excellent. Well, thanks, Brian. It's been a true pleasure. I appreciate you. James, it was a pleasure to meet with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you learned a little something from my discussion with Brian Feraldi. You can help me by following or subscribing to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon and sharing the show with someone you think might enjoy it. I'm happy to say that we've got more great guests and interesting topics lined up in the coming weeks and can't wait to share those with you. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.